Welcome to Violet Sessions. I'm Danielle Radoichin. We're recording at Violet Bakery in East London with my co-host Claire Patak. Today we are talking to Julie Weir, one of the most respected figures in the rock and heavy music industry. Julie has worked in the biz for nearly three decades, from working at an independent record store in Leeds, aged 18, to setting up her own label, Visible Noise, in 1998, to her current role as Head of Music for Nations at Sony Music. Along the way, she's worked with Lady Starlight, Blitz Kids, and Fearless Vampire Killers, among many others. She was nominated as Entrepreneur and sat on the board at the Independent Music Awards, and recently, she was one of the first inductees at the Women in Music Awards. Oh, and she also has a very impressive collection of biker jackets. Here's Julie Weir on Violet Sessions. Hello, Julie Weir. Hello, ladies. Welcome to Violet Sessions. Hello. Thank you very much. Hi, Claire. Hi. <laughs> so, Julie, you were saying you're feeling a bit crinkly around the edges as you were out last night. I was out last night. My friend Blue had the official opening party of her new tattoo studio. She used to run into you in St. John Street in Islington, which is probably oh, yeah. London's oldest tattoo studio, mm. which closed recently. After 23 years, because they sold the lease on the building, and Alex Binney, who runs it, thought... If they moved, it wouldn't have the same kind of feeling, wouldn't have the same vibe, and he's got a thing about 23, so it kind of worked for everyone. So Blue opened her place, which is called the Blue Tattoo, in Hammersmith last night with an exhibition from another friend of ours, Nicole Law, who's another tattooist and artist. Oh, amazing. I actually we're in the market. I might have to go check it out. For a tattoo or yeah. for paintings, <laughs> for really? For a tattoo, yeah. Oh, we can hook you up there, definitely. I'm having, like, a, yeah, I'm feeling the need to get one. Oh, Phil, well, give us a shout. <laughs> can always help you out there. Thank you. Great. You bought a painting, didn't you? And I bought one of Nicole's paintings, yeah. which I'm not going to tell you the title of it because it actually doesn't indicate what it was. It's a beautiful albino peacock with some flowers mm. around it. It's really mm. it's huge. It's really lovely. But I've actually got it for my mum and dad's 50th wedding anniversary. Ah, oh, very sweet. Do they still live up? They still live in Cumbria, Cumbria yeah. where you were born and grew up. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They still live in the same house that I was born in. Amazing. Well, they're coming down in two weeks. So whether the painting will be available then, I don't know, because I can't remember when the exhibition finishes. <laughs> but I might have to ship it to them, I don't know. <laughs> I can't really see my dad sitting on the train with this huge, like, sort no, of albino peacock anyway, <laughs> That's really. like, thanks a lot, Julie. Yeah, thanks very yeah. much, yeah. <laughs> Logistically complicated. Maybe he'll have to leave at your house. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, I can see where my mum will put it already. It'll be in the hall. All right. <laughs> know where it'll go. <laughs> And you're friends with um, Sylvia Ferrego, who we've talked to before on Violet Sessions. I am indeed, yeah. yeah. How do you know her? I, you know what? It's one of those things that I think I actually know her through a bar that we go to called Garlic and Shots. So I know her. I know Joe, her friend as well, the illustrator. Yeah. As well. yeah. So yeah. We did her actually, too. We've yeah. 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 They're great podcasts here. as well, yeah. actually. Aww. But it's, it's actually quite a small mm-hmm. world because there, there was a few of us that always used to drink in there. And then it, it was a bunch of... I hate the word as well, but it's a bunch of, if you look at it now, it's a bunch of really creative people. Mm. And there's a guy called Andrew Hartwell as well, who runs a label called Aurora Borealis. And he's like a, he's one of these people who cycle for fun. But not in, not in the just, not pottering round. I mean, I'm talking doing a, a Tour de France stage for Amazing. a laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. You know, like 120 miles up and down. I'm like, that's punishment to me. That's not a fun, that's not a fun Sunday afternoon. Me too, me too. What, what, what do you normally get up to on a Sunday then? On a Sunday afternoon, actually, I normally go for a big long walk with the dog. Mm. 
We normally go up the Parkland Walk, which is really beautiful. And Where is that? Oh, yeah, go on. The Parkland Walk? Yeah. It's just off uh, Finsbury Park. Okay. So it's, it's the old disused railway track. It goes from oh, Finsbury nice. Park all the way up to Highgate. Okay, because Sylvia and I often go to the Walthamstow Marshes. Oh, yeah, you know what? There. I haven't been there yet. Yeah, it's supposed to be I, beautiful. It's nice to know of a new, new spot. But there's, there's that. There's, um, there's some marshland just the other side of Finsbury yeah. Park that's apparently amazing. And there's the Gillespie Park as well. Okay. Which I've lived in, I've lived in Finsbury Park for 22 years and I've yeah. still never been there. That's pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> but normally on a Sunday that's I'm more worried about what I'm eating or <laughs> lying <laughs> horizontal. Or <laughs> so, um, and you're... So at the moment, you well, you've got had an amazing career, which um, we want to talk about. But um, your label head at, of music for Nations at Sony Music. Yes, I am. Yes. And tell us a bit about what that involves. Um, well, well, my background actually is independent music. So I, I went into Sony just over a year ago, April two thousand sixteen. Which actually the times moved incredibly quickly. When you think it's like sort of what fifteen months, I feel like I still feel like the new kid at school because mm-hmm. I'm still learning. When you when you go from running your own independent company and you go into a corporate environment, I'm still the systems for systems, you know. And I mean, yeah. people say like sort of, oh, you need to use karma for that, and I'm like, karma to me is somebody getting bitten in the bum for doing something bad, right? <laughs> but karma's a system that we need to use. So there's like acronyms and things all over the place. Yeah, yeah. But it's um, a new language. It, it, it is, and I mean, yeah. it, is, it is a corporate language, but luckily, as like sort of the, we've got like the naughty kids corner in the office, we've got taxidermy all over the walls and everything. So when people are walking through the office, everywhere is painted white, it's people like tripping over themselves, going, What the hell's that over there? But it means we've got personality there, mm. and people know what, what we're there for as well. We're, we're like the specialist rock and guitar and alternative label, whereby we do all the marketing, we can do AR, we can just help and advise people, mm. but as such people kind of don't really know what we do. So you can <laughs> so, sort of do what you want. Yeah, we, we just get left alone to just get on with it because we're, we're experts in our field, which yeah. is brilliant. Yeah. It was quite a big deal because I was looking, doing a bit of Google research around you and um, when you joined them, it was like all over the music press and there were loads of um, press releases. And So obviously you're kind of a big deal. <laughs> I'm going to go bright red now. Uh, well, I, I, I never really think of myself as such. I think it's just because I've been around as long as the dinosaurs have in my, in my genre, really. I mean, I started working at a, a, a smaller label called Cacophonous as a label manager, which was a black metal label, which really isn't me at all, honestly. It's more of a, what can I say? It, it's very specialist and very niche. But I mean, it's, it's really interesting music. But there's a lot of like sort of interesting political theories around it, and it's very, it's very male heavy. It's very Scandinavian heavy, and mm-hmm. I just kind of kept my head down and got on with it. And I didn't, I, I didn't not enjoy it, but it wasn't something that you would. It's not something that you would listen to on a Sunday morning. Yeah, you know. But I, <laughs> but my my boss at the time had kind of realised that I wasn't really that happy doing that kind of work, and he just said, "Well, why don't you start your own label and sign the bands that you like?" Yeah. So I went on to sign like sort of younger UK rock acts because everybody was working with the Americans everything mm. the Americans are really cool and I was just seeing all these brilliant UK bands who were getting no support whatsoever so I started Visible Noise in 1998 that's your own that was your own label but that was underneath I, I, my business partner was my old boss right so we went on to do that and I only left there last year so that's that's in 2016 when I left really but I mean we, we, we signed bands like Bullet for My Valentine I signed Bring Me The Horizon who were a who are a really massive deal now. They they play multiple O2 arenas, which is, from when I first saw them, a bunch of snotty Sheffield kids <laughs> with strange hair and really tight jeans to, like, sort of these absolutely massive productions that look like 
going to see Roger Waters' wall. You know, that it's absolutely amazing to see people like that grow. But they're actually, ironically, I licensed them, well, I actually sold the band on to Sony, so it was a logical progression for me to leave there and move into Sony anyway, because I've always worked with Sony, I've licensed other bands to them, a band called, well, now an infamous band called Lost Profits, but I worked with Sony on those guys, I've worked with them on Bullet, and obviously I've then sold Bring Me The Horizon, and I've consulted on them on numerous bands with them as well, so it made complete sense for me to move in there with those guys. What does it feel like going from having your own label where you're in charge and the boss going into another company where presumably you've got to report to somebody or yeah I mean it's really interesting we had a planning meeting two days ago and I'm used to doing those kind of things because we used to do them with the other artists that we've worked with but it was the first time I was doing a planning meeting as a label head inside Sony and I had to introduce my boss and I kind of introduced him as my boss and he visibly winced which was well I thought that was actually really quite sweet because he doesn't treat me like that he is my boss, if you know what I mean, because he just says, what do you think of, more than that. But, I mean, going into that actual kind of structure, as I say, I still feel like the new kid, and I still feel like, I don't know, sometimes I feel like a bit of an imposter. I know that sounds really weird. Mm. But then you walk around and realise that because you've got an independent background and you've worked across loads of different disciplines, like I've done, I, I do recording, I do in, I do publishing, I've, I, I've done business affairs, I've, I've done management, I work with brands, I do sync... I've worked with agents, I've worked with merch companies, so I, I know a, a very rounded level of the music industry, yeah. and I know a lot of it quite in depth because you've always had to do it on your own. When there's a team of two of you, and then suddenly there's 500 people, it's actually quite terrifying, I'll be yeah, honest. Yeah, I can imagine. I think it's kind of amazing, though, that um, even someone at your level feels like an imposter. I just almost think that, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, but it is weird because when you when you sit on your own, and like my, my other office was like literally me and Angela, my assistant, who's now gone on to work for a really good PR company. If anybody needs a good PR company, but, um, so that's so that's just me and her. And when you go from that, and the only other person to ask a question with is somebody that you're training, it's quite difficult. Yeah, you know. So you, you've you've either got to just bite the bullet and get on with it, or just never leave your house <laughs> really. and that wasn't an option so you just yeah. had to really just kind of get on with it but I mean yeah. being in that building there's a lot of people there with such great knowledge and I mean we're working on a, a grime act actually at the moment and if my teenage self ever thought I'd be working in the urban sector what who, who is the grime it's a band called Asteroid Boys but they sit between like sort of hardcore rock and hardcore and grime Julie's looking over at Warren there <laughs> our sound engineer because he knows much more about this yeah. than we like, do. I'm like hmm <laughs> Yeah. But, they're, but they're great, actually, and, and the energy is amazing. But I, I signed them for the purpose that I didn't want people just to think we were going to sign another metal band. So we've signed that, which is a big shock for them. And actually, it's a bit of a shock for us, because we know how to market and a and and work with rock, metal and alternative acts. But going into the urban sphere is a completely different world. Mm. But I know we can do it, because we work with other people in the building who've got ten times my knowledge on that. And it's brilliant being able to learn. And I think that, that's why I wanted to take the, the leap, because I'd stopped learning. Yeah. I can imagine that's really exciting, because having my own business and doing, you know, I'm the boss of all the bakers every day, and it's like when I have the opportunity to work with someone else and just, like, learn a bit more about what they're cooking or what their musical knowledge would be, yeah, it's super, it's like it refreshes your kind of interest as well. You need it, though, as well, because, yeah. I mean, the music industry can be an incredibly frustrating place. And learning how to do like sort of a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the digital marketing team in, in our office is just—they scare me. I'll be honest, because I don't know how people can keep marketing. Up. People are scary, I think. 
yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I'm also a marketing person. But the, but the digital side of it all, it's like you've got to be creative, but you've got to be a stati- statistician, mm. and you've got to be a scientist, and you've got to be really nerdy, but you've still got to be a creative nerd. And how you, how you actually get all that into one parcel and actually keep up with every single development and every single new platform that's coming out and different ways of doing things is beyond me. Because I think my brain actually has reached capacity. And you know when you, you think, I'm going to have to pull something out to fit something else in. And, and I, just, I don't know what I can pull out. But that's why they're there, so I don't yeah. have to pull anything out. What are you looking for? How do you decide who's got the talent to, be, to, to, you know, to break when you're trying to break someone new? I, I think the, the one thing I really love is fearlessness. And working in a building where you've got things like you've got the Foo Fighters which is one of my favourite artists anyway but then you've got Little Mix and then you've got all of like the Ministry of Sound stuff it's a really really big mix of things but I mean Pop's very big at Sony and Pop's it's not the antithesis of what I would listen to but it's just not my world and I like people who can actually go out and walk walk their own kind of furrow, walk their own street. And I think it's very difficult to find people who've got their own ideas and who aren't scared of showing them now because people... People always want an acceptance, regardless of whoever they are, really. But if somebody can actually go out and go, you know what, I don't care, this is me, that's what I'm going to do, and that's what I'm going to sound like, that's what I'm going to look like. It's great, because, I mean, most of the bands, if if you've got to bring me the horizon... You don't want another five Bring Me the Horizons. And when we'd signed those guys, we were just getting demos that sounded like that. Yeah. And it's like, you don't understand it, peeps. You don't understand it. We've got them. I don't want a yeah. second, third or fourth rate of them. And I, I don't also want like another, another copycat artist. So you want something really interesting. And Asteroid Boys, for us, as the first signing to the label, are really, really different. Really, and they've got, they've got a punk rock storytelling attitude, but they've also got an urban leaning. So it's, it's actually more about their attitude for me and the fearlessness and um, what, how is it being I'm interested to know what it's like being a woman in your industry mm. it's actually I've I, I, I worked with AIM which is the Association of Independent Music and I was uh, on the board there and AIM were one of the first companies mainly thanks to Alison Wenham who was the head of it at the time that were absolutely fearlessly like sort of pushing women in the industry because they see women as, as a different position. Now, there's definitely a pay gap, but that's like, sadly, patriarchal society. But I've, I've never found myself as a woman having issues working in an industry that's male-dominated. And I, I don't know, it's just whether the way I've been brought up or what, I've never had that issue because I've never really... I'm an only child and I've always been forced to go out and do things on my own, so that's never really been a problem for me. But I know a lot of people who have had issues and there's, there is a really big movement of women in music as well. And I think it's brilliant to bring people to the forefront. There's a lot of younger girls now who seem more timid and have got a bit, a bit of a chip on the shoulder about it. And I, I think it's not about being a woman in the industry. I think it's about being the, the best person that you can be and being really good at your job. Because I know... Women who are absolutely blindingly amazing, and I know women who are not great at what they do, but they really enjoy it. But then you've also got men who are brilliant at the jobs, and then some who are borderline not great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because when you say it's it's male dominated, I guess the question is why is it still male dominated? Mm. Um, so you know, even if it's not about the experience of being a woman in there, but why aren't more women moving up? In, in that industry, I wonder. I mean, not that you would have the answer to that. Actually, actually though, I mean, what, one of our main bosses, Nicola Chua, mm. is a woman, mm. obviously, and yeah. we have Michelle Anthony, which is still there and not in the States, and she's one of the head of legal counsel over yeah. there. So Sony actually has a lot of 
really powerful women in, in the in the upper ranks, which is rare in those kind of in, in the those major kind of companies. Labels. Yeah, because yeah. the majors, there is a there is a feeling of gatekeeping. Yeah, and it's it's in the hands of the finance people as well. And do we have female? Fi- I think that the, the finance heads are male actually. Yeah, but I think. I, I also think it's the whole, if you want to have kids and stuff, and I mean, I don't have children. Yeah. I've got a big dog, but that's about it. Yeah, but, yeah. but I don't have children. I mean, that's probably different for me, you know, and that, that's changed it a lot. But I mean, we always have this conversation with, there's a lady at CAA and she's one of the, the really head agents, she's called Emma Banks, mm. and she's absolutely fascinating to talk to because she's, she feels like me, and I've, I've sat on women in music boards with her. Where like sort of people have come in and asked questions, and it's it's it tends to be younger girls actually yeah. who, are, who are feeling more timid, which to me is it's it's a worrying situation because people shouldn't be worried now. Yeah. Like, surely people should have been worried like thirty years ago yeah, when people exactly. actually just had to get their heads down and get on it. And I think that depends on a person's personality, but hmm. but the actual nervousness and timidness and like sort of people like sort of being on the back foot is is definitely coming from younger women now. It's really interesting. And, and uh, I mean, a mentoring scheme, I think, is, is the answer to that, mm, really. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I, I actually want to speak to our HR department about that, because we have a great set of interns that come through every year. And actually, I've got a, a male intern this year. But actually, after I leave here, I'm going to do intern assessments. So God bless them. But, um, but <laughs> I, I would really like to be able to sit and actually find out what they want. You know, because I mean, if people are worried about things or they're nervous about things, and to be honest, this goes for young men as well. Because mm. it, it, in an age of fear of missing out, like the whole Facebook thing, like people were saying, people are stepping away from being online because it's always pe- photos of people. I'm on the beach in Ibiza. Uh, yeah, having or, um, such an amazing time. Yeah, it's exactly. Like depressing. Or I'm, I'm, I'm Machu Picchu or I'm in Kathmandu or whatever. <laughs> and, while you're sitting in like sort of a two bedroom flat in Finsbury Park, thinking, oh, you know, in those kind of situations, people, it, it's. People just start second guessing themselves, and I yeah. think that, I think that's wrong. Mm. I don't, I, especially at a time now where everything's so readily available, knowledge is available, and there's a lot more power to be had from that. I just don't think people should worry; they should just try and push themselves forward. Um, what about? So you grew up in Cumbria, and um, only child, as you say. Um, I think your dad worked in the steel industry, yeah. did he? Your yeah. mum was also worked locally as a secretary. My mum, until she had me, she was a secretary at the town hall. So tell us about your journey from being a child and going, when, and then you went on to Leeds University and, did you go to Leeds University? I went University? to Leeds to work, I was at um, Salford University. Oh, that's right. Um, so tell us about what happened and how you then got into music and what got you into being like a goth and <laughs> all that stuff. It's, uh well, I always knew I wanted to work in music, really. And, and growing up in Cumbria, it's basically you had a choice of going to work at British Steel or at Sellafield. That's it. And as a as a girl, if you went to the careers advice people, it would be so what you like to do: <laughs> accountancy, social work, secretarial, nursing. And I'm like, I want to work in the music industry. I like next, you know. And even my mum and dad are kind of like, do you not just want to do something with maths? Yeah. Because I was I was good at maths, <laughs> but it, ne- it never really worked. But um, I, I I knew I wanted to go away to college, so I went to Manchester. Uh, well, I went to Salford. So it was really close to Manchester. I did sociology, which. I didn't honestly know what I wanted to do, and it was just a means to an end at that point. But I did well with that. I got two one, and then left Salford to go to Leeds with a boyfriend at the time, actually. So I went to Leeds and ended up working in a record shop in Leeds for a few years, which kind of pushed me further forward. Ended up 
um, involved with a, a place called the Duchess of York, which is a venue, like a really legendary Leeds venue. And then also um, was <laughs> instrumental in it, a club called Asylum, which is an industrial and, industrial and goth night. There we go again. <laughs> but, um, but I was in Leeds for a little while, and then I just kind of got bored with doing that kind of work, and I applied for a British Academy um, scholarship to do an, a master's in London, so I came to London to do an MA in film and media, and then really never left. But I, I, I can't say I really enjoyed the master's, to be really honest, because it was just a, a years-long course where I don't really feel like I learned a terrible lot, apart from I really know I don't like Battleship Potemkin. <laughs> That's it. That film's terrible. Oh, my God, I hated it, too. I agree with yeah. you, totally. I'm like, really? Um, but do you think that it that having that degree, um, you know, looked impressive when you went to, you know, maybe start your business and then I, I later think, on get yeah, it? When, yeah, when you've got, you've got a BA and an MA, yeah, it does look. It helps, right? But, it also, but you don't put them on your business card because people think no. you're a right muppet, don't they? <laughs> it's really weird, BA, <laughs> What was it like working in the music industry in London at that time? Um, was this the 80s? This would have been... Watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Subtly trying to slide that in there. No, this would have been 95. Oh. Exactly, but not far <laughs> off the 80s, actually. But, um, yeah, um, I worked in an independent, but I went in as a merchandising manager, really, to, to start with. Mm. So that's where I know, like, kind of the merch side of it all. Then worked into being a label manager, which is, like, sort of just doing the overall day-to-day running and everything, and then moving into to Visible Noise in 1998. And I, I also possibly think that the fact that I had to work as an independent, really, because... An independent, you've got, you've never got money to spend on anything, so you've got to be really creative in the way that you think, and you've got to be really fearless to get what you want. Because if somebody else is going in with a, I don't know, you know, like a, a two grand budget to do a tiny little job, and you're going in with about twenty quid, yeah, you know, you've got to really learn how to either sell body parts <laughs> that you don't need, or you've got to be really creative in your way of thinking. What so, was it? What was the thing that kind of? Was your first big break at Visible Noise? My first big break at Visible Noise was actually signing Lost Profits, which is now, ironically, probably one of the reasons I wanted to move to Sony, because that, at the time, when all of the, the, th- the thing came out about Ian, which was a massive shock to everyone, it's just, I, I felt like I'd wasted 16 years of my life mm-hmm. there. So tell us about that and what happened for people who might not know about it. OK, well, I, I signed a band called Lost Profits in 1998. They actually went on, we sold millions and millions of records. They're a fantastic kind of pop rock band. They were never the coolest band in the world, but people loved them because they were real, really nice people, all from Pontypridd in Wales, and just like... It, it was just very organic. It was almost like having a boy band, but without it being manufactured at the time, because it was literally... Everyone looked different. It was something for everyone, if you know what I mean, that kind of department. Yeah. Boys wanted to be them, girls wanted to be with them, mm-hmm. per se. But um, we got... I got a call, and I remember it was the 22nd of December 2012 work from the manager saying that uh, we have a bit of an issue and I was like I, I have no idea what you're talking about and I was standing outside Papagonis on Stroud Green Road while we were having a Christmas meal and he just told me what had happened and basically the singer had been convicted or should I say had been arrested on suspicion of um, paedophilic offences and this trial went on for about two years until he was actually I mean un- set, I mean, it's like it's, it's unprecedented he got 39 years for Stuff that I mean, I, I stopped reading it all because yeah, I mean, I've worked with the guy for 16 years and we know all the tour managers, all of the crew, everything. I mean, people were living in, pe- in people's pockets but never saw this coming. And people just kept on calling me. I was getting calls from the news, I was getting death threats, all this kind of stuff off people saying that you knew it was going on. But I just feel really sorry for all the kids who've got all like tattoos and things like that. 
But a lot of people grew up with that, and it's a band that got a lot of people through hard times as well. But I also feel really bad for the other lads because I, I still speak to Mike Lewis. The I still band speak dissolved. to Stuart. The band dissolved, and they went on to do another band called No Devotion, who actually went on to win a Kerrang Award for it was with a guy called Jeff Rickley from Thursday. But they went on to win a Kerrang Award because, I mean, honestly, to come out of something like that, it's like a phoenix from the flame situation. Yeah. And to come out and actually say, you know what, it, it's still us. It's just we didn't do what he did. He's got to stand over there on his own. You know, and to actually do that, that, that takes serious balls, really, to do that. I think it's hard for them to come back as well. I mean, everybody else has now got a different career in, in, in other parts of... Well, most of them are still creatives, but Jamie's gone on to be an artist. Stuart owns his own studio. Mike Lewis went into management for a little while. So everybody's gone off to do other stuff. But I just, I still really felt for them, because imagine, as a musician, you've, you've built up recording and publishing copyrights over that amount. I mean, we had four albums as Visible Noise, so we had to take everything down from all of the digital sites, we had to destroy so much stuff. So it was absolutely, it was like two years of hell. It really was. And I mean, that would, that would be hard-hitting, even if it was at a major label, but for, for an indie, when we'd basically put heart and soul and 16 years' worth of work into it, it just basically, I felt like I'd lost a limb. How did you honest. cope with it on a personal level? Wine and gin, actually. But I did, I did actually find myself going out a hell of a lot as well to do that. But it's just like people are constantly asking questions, you know, and, and some people can be quite insensitive about stuff like that. Because, I mean, I work with the band so long, I've been to all the weddings, all the things like that. And, the, and it, it's a stupid thing to say when you've run a label because bands are never really your friends. But even when I wasn't working with them, I still spoke to them. And we'd been in a partnership for so long that... They, they were actually my friends, and I wouldn't really say that as a rule. But actually just feeling that kind of level of sorrow, which we, it's, just, it's just really, really awful, and there's no, there's no way of getting around it. There's no way of making things better, because it's happened, and you can't really, you can't really repair that hole. Mm-hmm. And what, happened, what effect did it have on the label? Well, on the label, I mean... I mean, sorry, I meant actually on your, on your company. I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... I mean, I, I lost a lot of faith in the label, I'll be really honest. I mean, we were still working with Bring Me The Horizon and everything at the time, so I was trying to shift focus onto that. But I, I, I found it very difficult to actually get my head around doing other things, actually, because it, it had really, really hurt. I think it knocked a lot of confidence, Yeah. actually, to be really honest. And I mean, that's one of the reasons that I was almost thinking of an exit strategy, and that's why I ended up really moving to Sony, to be quite honest. I mean, I, I knew I wanted to do something else, but I also kind of... I don't know, I, did, I felt like the label had been tainted at that point. Yeah. Which is an awful thing to say, because, I mean, it's been a lot of work as well, but... I mean, I'm still proud of all the other achievements, I'm still proud of... We, we, we brought all of my Valentine, I'm still really proud of the work we did with Bring the Horizon, and even, like, the younger bands that we worked with, like Your Demise, Cult 45, we did um, Burn Down Rome, all, all of the smaller bands, I'm very, very proud of that, but that kind of... I felt like I'd been burnt, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I suppose, um, you know, you maybe close one door and then the new one opens and it well, sounds like it's worked out But exactly, and, and an awful thing to say it's maybe the impetus I needed to actually push myself further because I think I got very comfortable yeah. at Visible Noise because when, when you are your own boss it's, it's both a blessing and a curse because yeah. it's like you can kind of do what you want but if you don't go out and do that you're not going to pay your mortgage that month no, <laughs> you know? exactly. and that's the kind of yeah, thing you've got to I'm, think about I'm in that conversation with my accountant lately <laughs> <laughs> but but you're quite right actually, and I've never really thought about it like that. It's like, it's like therapy, this. But, but I've, I've never actually thought about it. We like to it. think it is. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually a really, it's a really really good call because I had stopped learning, and as, as much as I loved working with Angela and everything like that, I, was, I think I was feeling that things were stagnating. And I mean, 
as I was saying about the whole budget thing, sometimes it gets really tiring having to just fight for every single penny that you're doing. I mean, I wouldn't change it for the world, don't get me wrong, because I think my education in that kind of in that kind of arena basically has, has put me in very, very good stead for doing everything else in the music industry and dealing with managers, because people know I understand the management side, I understand yeah. the live booking side. So, I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, at, at the time we were also running a little club called Subverse as well, which was actually trying to get kids into rock music as a, as a bit of a reaction to pop music and reality shows. Yeah, which nice. is How did that go? It was brilliant. We ran it for eight years, called Subverse. We, we discovered loads of artists through it. It was like an A&R tool. <laughs> but, I mean, we're, we're actually thinking about restarting it, to be honest. And it's, it's quite funny because there's actually a lot of kids' gigs now for alternative and instrument, uh, like instrumental electronic music that kids absolutely love with people like Mel Banana. But we were doing more, <laughs> more rock gigs, so... Nobody else was doing it at the time, and uh, as a rule, the like sort of the minimum age to get into venues used to be 16. But we had like eight and nine year olds running around, jumping around to like Dukes and nothing, or bring me the horizon, <laughs> but of my Valentine. It was, it's just brilliant to watch. Oh, I think please restart that again. <laughs> it's great, but we, we might do it. It was at the Underworld in Camden. I'd like to do it somewhere that's, that's maybe a little bit more east. I think yeah. though, as well. Because well, yeah, I'd, I'd like, like, like to see a load of stoky parents sitting there <laughs> re- re- reading the Observer while <laughs> the kids are bouncing off the walls. <laughs> well, we went to something recently called Disco Loco for our like 18 month old. So and it was awesome so. but they have kids raves everywhere <laughs> yeah, my, my friend Lisa runs a, a festival in um, Birmingham called Supersonic yeah. and they do kids raves at Supersonic the kids absolutely love it the kids love it the parents are like ah oh, this is nice <laughs> yeah kids can go crackers for a couple of hours yeah. and parents can just sit and have a nice glass of wine yeah corner, exactly yeah. Bloody Mary yeah <laughs> um, you've, you've also worked with a ton of other amazing bands and broken amazing artists um, I was just looking online but it was you know there's Fearless Vampire Killers that you've worked with Blitz Kids um, also Lady Starlight, which I thought was really cool. And I think you worked with Lady Gaga to yeah, kind of join Lady those two together. So Lady what, Starlight was Lady what? Gaga's DJ. Yeah, cool. So we, we did a lot of stuff on the road with Lady Gaga, actually. So Lady Starlight and Lady Gaga grew up together on Lower East Side, going through like lots of performance things and clubs. And Starlight was touring with Gaga, and she really needed a manager just to help her out on the road and deal with a lot of production issues and contractual issues so I, I started doing that and I mean that was like being on the road with a circus <laughs> I've never seen anything like Why? it Why? Tell us what it was like The level of production I mean I never got to meet Lady Gaga in all this time but I did go to the box with her once but in her entourage <laughs> I was never allowed to speak to her <coughs> that, that club the box Yeah Oh yeah It's so disgusting <laughs> Have you been? Is it the one in Sarah? <coughs> it looks, it, it's really highfalutin and you go in there and they took us to the green room and the green room was like a, a, a shed with like sort of sofas and all the stuff in was blue, it was green, really green. <laughs> it, was it, it was a hot place for a while, it wasn't was, it? Yeah. It's still it's quite still, hot, I think. I think it still is, yeah. But it's just the clientele would leave a lot to be desired, mm. definitely. But, but that was, it was an interesting time that really, we did that for the two major world tours. So And then Starlight, I, I was uh, working with her doing her own DJ stuff as well because she... She kind of supported Lady Gaga by doing some performance art and DJing. She started off as a rock DJ, but she's now morphed into, what would you call it, a techno DJ, I suppose. Techno's maybe not even the right word, but I stopped managing her then because that is really not my world, and I just don't understand it. But she does a lot of um, partnerships with a guy called Surgeon, so she'll play places like Bergen and stuff in Berlin now, Mm. which is probably... I mean, she was getting a lot of money per night when we were working with her, but I would say she's tripling or quadrupling that now because of the techno scene. So fair play on her. Good for her. Nice work if you can get it. Is there anything you'd like to do professionally that you haven't done yet? Oh, you know what? I don't know. I'd I'd really like to have a band headline Wembley Stadium. That's one thing I've never done yet. Mm. I've had people 
go as far as all of the arenas and headline festivals, but I'd really like to have a stadium headliner. And I don't know if I can do that in the rock world now, but let's why not? See. Why not? It's very it's it's getting harder and harder to break rock acts because mm. there's we were talking about like sort of gatekeepers and stuff at the top, yeah. and I mean there's still a level of older artists that don't seem to to go away because they can't because they're the festival headliners and they bring people in but because of that it's very hard to reinvest money in the lower levels of bands to get bands to a certain level and to to try and find the new generation of headliners is is basically the big challenge for us now bring me the horizon will probably be one of the 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 next level i would think because i mean they'll they'll be one of the next download headliners but whether i can see bring me the horizon headlining glastonbury i don't know i mean Rock always gets looked at as a bit of a ghetto. Um, with being at a major, I kind of want to change people's opinion of that, which is, again, one of the reasons that we, we started working with Asteroid Boys, because I want to prove that it's not just kids in black T-shirts with strange logos on it. You know, I mean, these are, they're doing loads of style shoots. We're working with Adidas, but we're also working with world wrestling entertainment. You know, so we've proven that you can sit in a lot of different fields and not just be stuck in, I don't know, under a dark rock in a corner, <laughs> which people seem to think. <laughs> All right, well, that was great. I think... I just have one question about yeah. the, um, the sort of, like... The, the the way people think about the music industry at the moment mm-hmm. and, and they're sort of worried about, you know, where it's going and with, you know, physical being, you know, actual, people not buying as much actual physical mm-hmm. albums, things. Although I heard in Germany they buy a lot of... Europe, Europe in general, yeah, they they're buy, like physical... Yeah, they love it. Yeah, they like physical... But then also, like, I see vinyl coming back and, like, I mean, like, what's the sort of landscape on that, like, with people downloading and streaming and it's i think you've got to actually question. embrace it again <laughs> yeah. we, we've been in a major the the fact that we we have people who are actually going and, and plug to places like spotify is which which is something we could never have competed with as, as an independent because mm-hmm. the, the plug is going with 50 large bands and then like sort of get the smaller bands you know it's, it's using things for leverage it's, it's the, the way that the world works really but we'd never be able to do that as an independent but the, the way that streaming's working i mean streaming is, is growing like that because yeah. i mean everybody that that's 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 my office yeah you know so that's got <clears throat> photos on it it's got my emails on it it's got my music on it it's got notes it's got everything so yeah. I, I don't have to walk around with she's holding up her iphone oh, yes yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have to walk around with I don't know a CD case and, a, and like a CD walking yeah. or anything anymore, or even your laptop. You know you don't need to take anything around. So access over ownership. It's about convenience for people now, and you, you you can't you can't really complain about that. Everything's changed. You know you're looking at people don't really watch TV. They watch Netflix or they watch things on catch up because people are out and about and they're really busy. Yeah. I mean even even looking at the difference between like sort of the, the way that cabs work. You know Uber and like sort of Lyft and things like that as it, as opposed to the standard black cabs and I mean black cabs are up in arms because they've took a long time to learn things but all you have to do is plug the <laughs> iPhone in and you can get anywhere on ways you know so okay. the world's changing there's, there's you've got to embrace technology in order to move forward and being at a large company we have departments who are always doing research and I'm, I'm obsessed with the technology and music and how it all works together like virtual reality and things like that and I find it really interesting and exciting and I think there's, there's got to be something that's just it's just waiting to happen something yeah. that's really big that'll revitalise everything but, but music will never go away M- music punctuates people's lives I mean 
you know, if you're really sad and you something happens, is there a song that you go to? I've got them. If, if there's, if you're having a really great time and you're in a really good mood, and you're singing into your hairbrush while you're having a glass of wine on the way out, you know, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing. You know, it's like people get married. There's a song. There's a first dance. You know, there's yeah. like funerals. There'll always be a song played. And I mean, it, it, it's almost like a like. You know, like the olfactory response where you smell things, you see things, like synesthesia, music brings that all together. Mm. And I think that that's why I still work in it, because it's, it's just, it's a realm that you, you, you can't ignore. Well, that's great. Lovely. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Julie. Thank great you very much, you. Yeah. That was, I said that was like therapy. <laughs> for me too, I feel so positive <laughs> and happy after coming in. Yeah, we'll just spill you afterwards. Yes. <laughs> okay, anyway. um, do we ask our question? Are we asking our question? Are we still going? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we just we haven't talked about cake yet, which is Ooh. like something that we like to bring up. Since we're sitting I'm, in the I'm more than happy to talk about okay, cake. Fantastic, one of my favourite subjects. In fact. Okay, great. <laughs> wow. Okay, that needs to come out. So, I, but, I wanted to ask you a question actually. Oh, so fine. With, with Violet being a baker, do, do you bake then? Are you a baker? I am a baker. Yes, yes. Started as a pastry chef. Wow. So started as a baker at home, and then became a pastry chef in California, and then moved here and started a stall on Broadway Market, and then I and then and then opened this. Cause, oh wow! Because I wanted to bake and I didn't want to work for anybody else. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So, if okay, so do you bake? I am useless. Okay. But I love to taste. <laughs> okay, great. So yeah, I'm more of a more of a trier than a creator in that front, I think, really. Do you have any classic cakes from, from Cumbria actually or things that you loved growing up or what's, what's your favourite cake these My, days? Ooh, that mm, I'm I have technically got three. One's not really a cake. <laughs> Does eating mess count as a cake? Totally. Yeah, eating mess is my absolute <laughs> favourite. Okay. But I also love red velvet cake because I used to work on Portobello Road. Okay, yeah, when when the hummingbird opened. Oh my god. <laughs> that is amazing. And they do this amazing rainbow cake in there that's yeah. brilliant as well. But I think if it was gonna be an old school cake it would be Black Forest Gatto because that's where I did grow up with. Fantastic. And it would have been Sarah Lee's really I cheap, love, nasty yeah, 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 at the time. Like really but, crappy but yeah, delicious. But delicious at the time. <laughs> we had to defrost it. You'll have to take a look on your way out there's a framed um a handwritten recipe of my grandmother's red cake. She just called it red cake. She didn't bother with the velvet part. It was <laughs> red but cake. But it's delicious, though. It really yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And what's so, your favourite, then? Uh, oh, I, I can't decide. I, can't, I just can't. That's why I opened a bakery, so I can make all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so. Very diplomatic. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. That was Julie Weir on Violet Sessions. You can find previous episodes on the Violet Bakery website via iTunes or your favourite podcast app. You can also keep up with us on Instagram by following at Violet Sessions. The show is a co-production of In Talks With and Wargie Productions. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.